an idea whose time has come cannot be stopped by any army or any government. The Other and One Paul Podcast starts now. Welcome to the Honor and Ron Paul podcast. This is episode 34. Episode 34, you can find that at www.com slash EP34. And I am joined today with Hunter Thompson, not Hunter S. Thompson. He's long dead, but Hunter Thompson, I think that you'll enjoy just as much. Uh, and he is an investor, entrepreneur. He has a podcast. He has a book. He does just about everything. And uh, so welcome, Hunter. Hey, thanks again for having me on. Much appreciated. So oftentimes what I like to do is, is have people kind of give me a deep dive as far as their background and, and you've had, uh, you know, some interesting things that kind of changed through the financial crisis. And then I, I think um, Ron Paul and Ron Paul's message uh, kind of made you interested in alternative investments. Am I summarizing that correctly or fill me in? Yeah, you know, I mean, to be honest with you, I think I went through what a lot of people that were left-leaning went through in the wake of two things that took place around the same time. So I was always a very staunch anti-war advocate. And when Obama ran one of the most brilliant campaigns that the world has ever seen, um, with the focus on not engaging in warfare and also a transparency, which to say that now, both of those things is just absolutely laughable. But when he was in, uh, inaugurated and not only continued the wars that existed, but ended up bombing seven countries and silenced whistleblowers and were pursuing them, that was bad. I mean, that was a real wake-up call, but that was nothing compared to the absolute silence of the political left. That for me was a turning point in my understanding of the way the world works and the fact that politics is kind of the ugly sister of philosophy in the sense that concepts and ideas, which I loved always, uh, were not applicable and had no relevance in the political spectrum. The people that I stood side by side with protesting wars were silenced because their team was in office. And this is all so well understood at this point, it's basically just a cliche to even bring it up. But to me, that was a really important turning point in my life. And I wasn't really turned on to the libertarian approach uh, until something really fascinating happened, which is growing up, learning about war, you know, you're always thinking when you're five and six and seven, why don't they just stop? Why does it need to continue on? Who is actually making the call that this is worth it and that this is a good way to spend resources? And it wasn't really until after I left college that I was asked a question that I had no answer for and most importantly had never been asked before despite being obsessed with these topics, which is how is war funded? It's a question that if you know the answer, it must reveal the reality of the warfare slash welfare state. And answering that question and simultaneously with Ron Paul's 2012 candidacy uh, was a really important moment. Now, simultaneously, I was always very much interested in economics, uh, like big picture concepts, but economics was not really fun for me. I was interested in economics to the point of uh, creating alpha, creating income, creating returns, uh, particularly asymmetric returns. Uh, 
And unfortunately, I'm very sympathetic to the Austrian school, but I think that the uh, there's a real lack of crossover between taking the concepts of the Austrian school and applying them to make prudent investment decisions. And so in 2010, in particular, I found a way to marry the two. I was very confident that the U.S. was heading for uh, a continued recession and most importantly, um, a slow economic recovery. And I thought if I could create investment opportunities that produce asymmetric returns during recessions, then I'd be more than happy to invest in them exclusively because I'd be willing to give up the upside of investing in cyclical investments for the predictability of outcome that comes with investing in inversely correlated investment opportunities. And those examples are kind of the mobile home park business, the self-storage business, uh, some forms of assisted living and workforce housing. And that investment strategy is I started out as a personal investor and later formed a company, and now we have hundreds of investors and more than $100 million under management. So uh, that's kind of the, the story of my political and uh, investment strategy background. Talking about Obama it, and his campaigning as being an anti-war person, it's really interesting because Bush during his first term was the anti-war candidate. He specifically, I specifically remember him saying, I don't want to get involved in, in foreign affairs. And that may have been just his intellect. He wouldn't wasn't able to handle it. But you know, uh, you know, he was kind of seen as the anti-war vote back in 02. Uh no, 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 uh 98, whenever whenever he kind of first ran uh, the um George Bush Jr. Uh so it, it's kind of interesting how and in Trump. He also appealed to a lot of anti-war people, um, but what do they actually do? They always seem to, you know, go back on those on those uh, promises, and it it may go back to your idea of you know uh, who is funding this and the entrenched powers, and just the sheer political influence of the connected people and uh, the Federal Reserve. And that's the other point I wanted to kind of talk about, you know, the World War One, the first war funded by central banks uh, through inflationary means uh, was one of those wars where at one point they just stopped. They had the Christmas truce and all the people who were forced to be there shooting at each other, they just stopped and they played. Uh, soccer, and they shared whatever minimal things they had, but they just still felt compelled to follow their leaders, and the very next day they shot each other. It's just such a bizarre thing. Well, it's really unfortunate because I understand that we do live in a world of governments. We live in a world completely controlled by governments in the United States. We have a a government school indoctrination camp that takes our children from the most impressionable years of their lives and leads them into legitimate adulthood. So for me to say that we can take our current state of affairs and say this is a good reflection of the human mind and the human persona is understandably challenging because this is not just everything in a vacuum. But human beings created the government. What's really unfortunate about what you just outlined is that I see a lot of data to suggest that this is the nature of human beings, that for the most part, human beings are subject to propaganda. 
that uh, the Stanley Milgram experiments would be have the exact same result that they have today. I think that's even unquestionable. We're seeing that in so many ways. Um, and it's somewhat lonely to be someone that uses truth as a measure of objective reality. Um, and I'm not trying to uh, toot my own horn or something like that. I know I'm speaking to an audience that's sympathetic to that. Um, but even in 2020, my interest in even engaging in, I'm happy that there are people that are willing to do what you do and kind of engage in the conversation. But um, I had a realization in 2020 that all these concepts, especially the concept that's most important to me, which is the war, is very clouded in a lack of information. You have to get sources that most people do not deem to be credible because the CIA, the NSA, the FBI, these are the people who are allegedly the providers of information regarding international politics. There's so many reasons why that can be complicated and muddled and, oh, the Syria uh, government gassed the people. I mean, it takes so much to convince someone that that is a myth. Mm -hmm. But the people who you are most likely trying to convince typically don't have, they're not even playing by the same rule book. I mean, we saw in the peak of COVID hysteria, the largest, most pronounced, most widespread tens of thousands of people protesting followed by what most people believe to be experts and scientists stating that those protests because of the nature of what they were protesting would not have a impactful spike in COVID cases and deaths after encouraging everyone to be locked in their homes. I mean, that was a real important moment for me. I've actually never talked about it publicly, but I really realized if you can't get the potential conflict of philosophy between stay inside, everyone get outside right now, I'm not going to have a lot of success trying to convince you that we should invade Syria. And to yeah. some degree, it made me feel good because I haven't been super successful in the latter, <laughs> but um, kind of disheartening. Yeah, I'm a, a physician uh, and you know this whole experience has has really been surreal uh, and that was one of the most kind of eye-opening things about the public health sphere and the public health influence where you know they're yelling at people you know one day that you know uh, going to see someone dying in the hospital is completely not okay going to funerals is completely not okay uh, you know all of these irreplaceable moments is, you know, not worth it, <laughs> but protesting is worth it. And then the very next day after that, the people who went to Trump rallies in their own form of protesting, they were grandma killers again. And it, it was, it's just, it, it really does, um, you know, shake my belief in, oh, you know, all of the science, the hard science side of things. Well, we're kind of above the political fray. We wouldn't be kind of corrupted. And, you know, I, I knew that there was, there's always influence um, with who funding, who's funding projects. And you kind of see that with a lot of the, you know, government research versus a private sector research. And, sponsored trials, you know, when something new comes out, 
every trial has been sponsored. You're like, yeah, well, see, I'll give me a, a, a bit. I'm not going to start using that medication until I see something that's a little more objective. But, you know, that was just so blatantly uh, an absurdity. <laughs> now, they, they could have said, you know, like, well, it was outdoors. There's, you know, a wide space. These are young people. Uh, so uh, by and large, young people are, have very minimal uh, impacts. And we encourage all those who protested to quarantine for two weeks or blah, 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 blah. You know, um, but they didn't say any of that. They, they didn't say that, well, these protests show that outdoor activities are fine. So go ahead and go to the beach. This uh, is, you know, we're going to, um, uh, although we wouldn't have agreed with the protests being wise beforehand, now based on the evidence that it didn't spread that much, you know, they could have done a lot of things that would have been at least, you know, quasi-scientific, but, you know, saying, oh, this protest is fine, but this Trump rally is not from a scientific perspective, you know, that's absurd. And it was just, ugh. <laughs> Agreed. I mean, but at the end of the day, I think, you know, that realization, I'm not trying to be, um, I actually mean what I say. I mean, in the sense that I have continuously since 2008 have recalibrated what I'm willing to engage in, in terms of trying to convince people otherwise. And that percentage has gone down and down and down and down. And it comes in leaps, right? It comes in 2008 when I see the lack of the outcry with the droning programs. And it comes again in 2020. And there's been plenty of other instances. Uh, 2016 was a kind of interesting milestone just because um, of the Trump phenomenon, which I did not predict at all and even lost a bet at the very late stages regarding uh, Trump's potential victory. Um, but at the end of the day, I have found, um, I consider myself to be an anarcho-capitalist, and I have found that the capitalist part is by far the most and by far the funnest part of that word. And it's so gosh darn compelling that if you can nail the capitalist part, the other part is far more compelling because you're living an interesting, fulfilling, and, and some would say cons successful life, and your ideas seem to be far more palatable uh, because you're a fulfilling person. <laughs> so I just recently did a, a podcast uh, on the topic of how to get away with saying offensive things, and it can be all boiled down to this. Everyone has that friend on their Facebook feed that is the let's say anti-vax person. And that's all they care about. It's anti-vax. That's every single post. And it's just, they're hitting one gear, but they're not really convincing a lot of people. They're just that guy. Um, that person will be far more compelling if he's an enriched individual with a, a great job and a great family and goes to church or has some, something where he's involved in the community. Uh, it doesn't have to be those things. Of course, there's something where there's multi-pronged approach. You can touch people in different ways, different senses. But I have found that building a business that can attract great clients, consistently deliver, and generate wealth for you and the, the loved ones that you have, uh, that is so much more fun. And I find that the challenging part in the world of anarcho-capitalism is that so many people focus on the anarcho part, but that part doesn't get you rich. What it does is get you uninvited to a lot of Thanksgiving dinners. And what you need to do is go to Thanksgiving dinners if you're going to be able to convince people and if you're going to be able to uh, create that 
true individual personal secession lifestyle uh, through entrepreneurship or just capitalism in general. So, I mean, that's the reason I'm so passionate and excited to talk to your audience in particular is that with my firm, ASIM Capital, we have found such a great way to find recession-resistant vehicles to give libertarians and like-minded individuals. Probably 30% of our hundreds of investors are very sympathetic to guys like Tom Woods and Bob Murphy and such, but it's taking those same principles and saying, okay, the ATM business, for example, which I know that you're somewhat interested in, is an excellent integration with the Austrian approach and the view on central banking. I'll give you an idea. The world of ATMs is dominated by transaction volume created by those who are unbanked and underbanked. And the reason they are unbanked and underbanked is that there's a mountain of regulation surrounding the banking sector. And that banking sector is trying to create economic viability, and it's become basically economically unviable to give clients bank accounts that have low balances. So you have, and you've seen the data from Peter Schiff and other people, millions, tens of millions of people who have a negative or less than $600 net worth, that it's not economically viable for them to have a bank account because if they have a $600 net worth and there's a $10 per month fee to maintain that bank account, they don't have a bank account. And that eliminates all the technology disruption that you're probably talking about in your own head. Venmo, PayPal, credit cards, all of these things are tied to your bank account. And then, of course, on the other end of that, the banking sector used to rely on lending out money at an interest rate to generate returns for themselves, the banks themselves. But that model has been drastically changed, especially over the last 30 years, but in particular 2010 or so. The permanent low interest rate environment has made it impossible for banks to make their money based on interest rates. So they all have transitioned to a model which is focused exclusively on fees. And so when you have a high fee, high minimum balance requirement environment, you create a very compelling investment opportunity in the ATM space, the likes of which most investors are unwilling to look at because they haven't looked into the data and don't see the central banking cartel the way that we do. There are a lot of these um, investments that I'm becoming more and more aware of. It's it's always uh, very difficult because there tends to be a a high stepping stone to kind of get into these uh, private placement or private equity type um, uh, investments. With ASIM Capital, is it just accredited investors or is there are there other avenues that people can invest with you? Yes, I, I appreciate you giving me the opportunity. So first of all, so that everyone is familiar with the language, an accredited investor is something that's defined by the SEC. There's a couple different definitions, but as far as an individual person, that's someone who makes at least $200,000 a year or has a minimum net worth of a million dollars, excluding their primary residence. So our investment opportunities currently are only appropriate for accredited investors. Now, part of that is because of the regulatory hurdles, but in truth, I think that the types of investments that we make available are probably only appropriate for people that are somewhere in that category. I probably wouldn't make it a hard line that the government does, but it's it's not my least favorite government regulation that exists. And there's plenty more that are far more impactful. Um, but yes, typically accredited investors only. 
and usually a minimum net worth, excuse me, minimum investment of fifty to a hundred thousand dollars. And I really like within that fifty or a hundred thousand dollars, my preference is to have multiple assets in that investment. So in the ATM deal, for example, it's thousands of ATMs across multiple states. So you're getting that predictability of outcome, but without sacrificing the return profile. Right, right. Um, and you also have a um, the Intelligent Investors Real Estate Conference coming up. Oh, yes. Do you I, want to I, talk so, about that? Yeah. So if you're listening to this and this is uh, kind of either something that you're already familiar with, the world of passive investing and private placements, or something that you're interested in learning more about, we have an annual conference that this year is going to be virtual for obvious reasons. And you can learn more about that at iirec2021.com. We have curated a list of speakers that focus on real estate management, uh, underwriting, raising capital, uh, to passively investing in non-real estate niches, anything relating to passive investments. And when I say passive investments, um, it's a term that refers to investing in a deal where not only are you not the one managing the asset, you're not the one managing the manager. You're one step removed from the asset itself. So if something goes wrong at the property level, let's say there's a termite infestation or something, the property manager will call what's called a sponsor. That sponsor does not call the past investors to say, we got a termite problem. You invest your 50 or your 100 or quarter million dollars and then get a quarterly report that may outline certain things. And by the way, a termite infestation probably wouldn't even make the quarterly report. Just something that you get the net economics forwarded to you and if it's a cash flow deal, the distribution. And I know uh, for some of you may be already hip to that. You maybe have some investing stuff that's already like that. But for a lot of people, it sounds like an infomercial. It sounds too good to be true. I send you the money and you just send me a, a great return. Um, and I am certainly sympathetic to that. But that is how my entire portfolio is set up. Uh, through 30 or 35 passive syndications in a variety of different real estate and real estate and non-real estate niches. And it all started in 2010 when I wanted to create an investment thesis surrounding the investment uh, recession-resistant kind of component where I thought the worse the economy does, there must be demand for certain products. So the worse the economy does, the more demand there is for mobile home parks, for example. The worse the economy does, the more people are downsizing, the more people are losing their jobs, the more people are, are moving to Florida where they're going to get a two-bedroom as opposed to a house. That's a great demand for self-storage. More people having kids move home from college unexpectedly. We've seen that recently. Um, to a large degree, this recent whatever stage of the economy we're currently in as far as November 2020 – We've seen that thesis be proven correctly in a lot of the investments we've made, and it's because of that recession-resistant component. Are you gonna? Uh, are you looking for any more uh, mobile home parks, or uh, you don't have any active deals going now? Correct. You just closed off the ATM. That's right. So. If you're listening to this, it's very likely that we have a deal that's available on our site. We typically will do three to four deals per year, very picky about the deals we do. But the mobile home park business, you know, in 2012, I tell a story about this in my book, I pitched a group of investors on the mobile home park business and it fell flat. And the reason is that 
of the people that were in that room, none were interested in taking on what they believed to be the tenant risk associated with dealing with the problems around the mobile home park business, given who you're catering to. But since 2012 or so, that industry has become extremely compelling. There's been a tremendous amount of activity in that space. There's so many nuances there. The most obvious is that as a real estate investor, when you own mobile home parks, you own the park itself, not the homes. So the homes are positioned on the park. Imagine it being like a lot of land and the tenants own the homes and pay you a lot rent. But the homes themselves are not very mobile. They may be worth $5,000 a piece, but it costs like 3000 or 5000 to move them. So the tenants are very stationary. And because of that, uh, you have a very predictable outcome. And there's many, many nuances of that, uh, as well as the social security checks and the potential default that's taking place there. But generally speaking, it's a very favorable supply demand equilibrium, and you have a very stationary tenant base. And so we love that space. We don't have a deal there right now, but um, depending on when you listen to this, we might. All right. And the book you're talking about is uh, Raising Capital for Real Estate. Is that what it was called? That's right. So I wrote a book about really how I built my business and people write books for all different reasons. Um, I wrote the book for the notoriety, for sure, but I am hell-bent on helping people get money out of the stock market. I don't have anything against people who invest in the stock market or even that investment strategy at all. It's more I want people to be aware that there is other investment vehicles out there. And we're lied to very early on about everything to do with money. I don't need to tell your listeners that you know the Federal Reserve banking system is not what we were taught it was and the reason it was formed was not it and it has not succeeded in its goal of quote stabilizing the economy it's just a joke <laughs> to hear that but it's also the case when it comes to investing um if you get a median income and invest in the s&p 500 that's not going to result in most people's ability to retire at 65 but um if you're able to get higher than the median income and not only invest in the stock market but invest in very lucrative niche real estate investments with downside protection that quote retirement can happen far earlier than most people think and then from a tax advantage standpoint real estate is extremely favorable in the united states uh, because of the quote depreciation which is a write-off you get every year for owning an asset Uh, it's counted as a loss and it usually can offset almost any cash flow gains you receive on an ongoing basis. So uh, people that are interested in reducing their tax exposure, uh, it's a very compelling tool. Well, that was uh, Trump's when they released uh, uh, Trump's taxes. They, that was all these discounts that he had taken uh, and all these losses. And people were saying that was a loophole. No, I mean, that's just the tax code. So, right. um, I mean... <laughs> When you're involved in real estate, you get these big depreciation uh, write-offs. So, yes. You know what? Can I make uh, a comment about that? Because I think your listeners think that's compelling. So yeah. the that situation, um, whether or not it's true, is I have no clue. But let's say it is true. Those write-offs that he particularly got, it's not normal depreciation that he got. He got extremely favorably treated tax credits for doing the exact thing that the tax code is designed to incentivize, which is rehabbing old, defunct, and sometimes historical properties. So it's just so funny to 
imagine the people who are most interested in creating those tax loopholes, um, yes, it's a bipartisan strategy because it's people who are interested in creating low-income housing because it's not economically viable to do so otherwise without government assistance because of loaning, zoning laws in the United States. So you have all these funny little government agencies and incentive structures working in different ways. And the key is, if you save money on your taxes, everyone hates you no matter what you develop and who you're trying to cater to and who what housing crisis you're trying to solve in New York City of all places, which is you know one of the most expensive places for real estate in the world. So anyway, just an interesting side note. Yeah. So uh, take me back to uh, the origins. You originally weren't involved in real estate at all, correct? Uh, well, yes. I mean, I began my real estate career on my own. I did not work for a company. I was very fortunate in terms of the timing of the market. I moved out to California in 2010 and started attending networking events to grow my network and was very quickly introduced to some extremely savvy, extremely sophisticated investors that are well-known individuals in the niche. And the reason for that was that everyone else lost their shirt. The people that were focused in California, especially on buying single family homes, fixing them up, taking on a lot of debt, they did not weather that storm. And so when the mother of all storms came, the only strategies that worked were recession-resistant real estate and multiple asset, multiple unit properties. So the default rate for agency debt, which is Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, on 150-unit, 250-unit apartment complexes was 1.5% during 2008, 2009, 2010. That is a stop-the-show type of statistic. And so all we want to do is mimic those types of investments and make them and take on very favorable interest rates, which I believe are going to stay perpetually low forever in my lifetime, and create legitimate cash flow for ourselves and our investors. And you know the reason I'm saying this in this manner is that I, I, sometimes I feel like I'm the only person that figured it out in the Austrian school. This is the same principles applying them to create multi-generational wealth. And unfortunately, um, you know, I stood up at a Todd, a Tom Woods event once and, and mentioned this and it was like, I was not met with a lot of people that had been familiarized themselves with this. It was like a completely novel idea, which is great. Um, but I want more people on board because I like, uh, rich libertarians more than any other kind of libertarians. <laughs> and for reference, uh, during that eight, nine, 10 single family default rate. Uh, relative to the multifamily? Oh, I mean, it w in certain states, you know, we were seeing 10, 15, 20% defaults in single-family houses. I mean, absolute devastation in Las Vegas and such. Um, wow. So real devastation. And the reason for that, by the way, is that property values were collapsed by about 30%, but rents reduced by about 3%. So this data is readily available, um, and it's common. Rental income is far more sticky than valuations. So if you buy commercial real estate based on rental income, you're positioning yourself to be able to weather that storm. That is all excellent advice. And the nice thing is, is that um, investing through you, you don't have to deal with phone calls in the middle of the night. Oh, my plumbing just blew out. If you want to 
you know, uh, take on a, a specific rental property yourself. Uh, you're dealing with one rental property, you own the headaches. Um, and so by diversifying within a fund, uh, you eliminate the headaches, uh, decrease the risk substantially. Uh, sounds like a good idea. Exactly right. And if you're a passive investor and you're interested in learning more, uh, you can check us out at www.asymcapital.com. It's short for asymmetric, right? So the, the goal is to produce outsized returns compared to the risk. And there's risk in every investment, but if you can consistently put yourself in a position to deliver a disproportionate amount of a return compared to the risk that you're incurring uh, over a year over year, month over month, generation over generation basis, uh, you're going to exceed you, you know, your typical investment strategy return profile. I think that is a perfect way to close this off. I promise to keep you for about a half hour. And so Hunter Thompson, um, Raising Capital for Real Estate is his book. Intelligent Investors Real Estate is the um, conference. And ASIM Capital, uh, check it out for all of your deals uh, with wonderful passive income stream. And I've just really enjoyed chatting with you. And it's uh, wonderful to meet a fellow capitalist. And if you're an anarcho-capitalist, all the better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks again. All right. Take care.